Hello everyone and welcome to this episode, the Empathy One of the Women Talking About Learning podcast. It's so good to be back. I was thinking how the first two episodes since our break go so well together. If you haven't done so, please make sure to listen to the human one from two weeks ago, either before or after this episode. Like last time, we have three amazing guests. Christian Hayden Safdie has done a little bit of a lot in learning, from managing 10-week online courses for members of an association, to developing a tabletop card game to teach kids emergency skills. She currently works in finance, and she explains to a six-year-old daughter helping people do their jobs the best they can. Lorna Leeson partners CEOs and their teams to shift cultures, drive performance, and create workplaces where people thrive. Empathy is a cornerstone value of her work, believing that when leaders lead with greater compassion for themselves and the people around them, truly transformational things can happen. Helen Hill specialises in producing creative educational resources alongside delivering small business and sustainability coaching. Working predominantly in the well-being, mindset and environmental spaces, she has a strong focus on helping you, your business and the planet to thrive. Our apologies for some of the sound in this episode. It was especially echoey and we don't know why. We've cleaned it up the best we can. This is Women Talking About Learning. This is Kristen, Lorna and Helen talking about empathy. Kristen, Helen, how are you? Hi, Lana. Yeah, I'm great. Thanks, you. <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. Kristen? I'm doing well. It's so nice to meet you both. I yes, know. We've not actually met before, have we, at all? No. No, I've not. So, empathy. Yes. <laughs> yes. Big topic. Where to begin? What's your take, Helen? Empathy in relation to the workplace? Yeah, it's something that I... I've been on the bad side of this where, you know, I've really struggled with uh, certainly a lack of empathy to me in terms of a disability I have. I was diagnosed with MS uh, 13 years ago, I think now, Um, you know, and it caused various difficulties and then mental health issues and things like that as well. Um, And it's really kind of put me into a big mission right now to make sure that I do everything with empathy and try and really help pick others up and make sure that no one feels like they're kind of excluded, pushed out, things like that. So it's, um, yeah, it's very much a big driver for me because I've been on the, the receiving end of the not so nice side of it. It's personal. It sounds like it's personal. And I think that's where most people, when they think about the topic, that's where they come from is the personal. And yes. the personal experience makes a lot of sense. What about you, Kristen? So I started working in learning um, primarily with external learners. So I worked for an association and a lot of our learners, we would never meet or see. Then I worked at an organization where I did customer training and a lot of those learners, we would never meet or see or know. Um, And what happens in those kinds of organizations, what I saw was that some folks who had been there for longer lost a little bit of their empathy for the learners. There would be a lot of, well, they never read anything. And you see this all over the place. They don't read, they don't get it, they don't want to participate. And it's, I got very, very frustrated with it. And then I just started really leaning into that empathy because I also don't read emails, especially when it's something that is going to take me away from my day job. It's something that, you know, I'm already trying to spend all of my time organizing my calendar to get a day to do this thing. I'm not going to read the emails that thoroughly. I'm very busy. Um, So I 
try really hard to apply that lens to my work. Um, I'm also very lucky to work with product managers and um, strategists and people who really think about empathy day to day. So it comes very naturally in the work at this point. What about you, Lorna? I think it's maybe a blend of the, of the the two of the the two of your experiences. So I think there's definitely a um, a hugely personal driver for the reason that I consider empathy to be critical in in workplaces and not just in learning, but in organisations and organisation development and culture in particular. Um, and I've experienced some extremely unempathetic workplaces, a kind of lack of empathy in the culture in in the fabric of how things happen. Um, I had a, an experience um, at the beginning of last year. I went on holiday by myself and um, my drink was spiked by the waiter in the hotel. And the way that the um, hotel and the holiday company reacted to me as a customer, coming back to your point, Kristen, um, lacked significantly in empathy. I think they probably followed their procedures and their processes to the letter, but they what they were missing was the recognition that there was a human at the end of this telephone line by herself, ill, having been abused, you know, assaulted, violently assaulted. That's what a drink, a drink spiking is. Um, and they missed that big time. Um, and I spent some time reflecting on it and I thought what is missing is the space within the organisational processes and goals for people to relate to people um, as, as, as human beings. And to, because when we are, from my point of view, we actually we're wired for empathy. We're social mammals. We're wired to connect with other social mammals. It's there in, in us. And yes, we're wired to be tribal and to look at people who are different to us and to kind of shy away from them. But we are wired for connection. And so I, I'm curious from my point from my point of view in the work that I do. What is it about organisations that sometimes cuts those wires? Mm. Well, you, you raised a good point there, though. About it's almost that it's that tick box culture, isn't it? Of we know we have to do this and it's that fear. If, if we do something wrong, it could come back at us and that takes over the empathy sometimes, I think. Certainly in my experience, it's, oh, we've got to follow this. We've got to do this level of paperwork and, and procedure and, and all of that. And it just takes away that kind of, like you say, the connection and the care, doesn't it, to a person because you're connecting to a piece of paper at the end of the day instead. Yes. And one of the big... Um things you hear about empathy, especially in learning design, is we can't know what people are thinking. And that's not really what we're asking for when we're asking for more empathy. It's listening to people. So Lord, I was following that journey you were on, trying to get home, and you were very clear with the people who you were talking to about what you wanted and what you needed. It wasn't a matter of someone having to read your mind or really step into your shoes. It was them being able to Think about what their goals are, think about what your goals are, and then come up with a solution by really, we always say like taking off your own shoes in order to put other people's on. And that's really the first step is get out of your own head and truly listen to what this person is saying and understand that they are different from you. Their experience right now is different from yours. And I think your example is such a perfect one of you were very clear about what you wanted and still that empathy was hard for people. Mm. Yeah, and I think it, it kind of, my reflection, and actually I spent some time talking to the customer services director of the travel company that I was, um, that, that that situation was with, and and they were great. The hotel has been 
less than great, but they were great in, in they wanted to learn from it. And what we really kind of landed on was back to what Helen was just saying. There is a fear that if we don't do this, if I don't do this, I'm going to get something wrong. So there's almost a fear that like stakes are high. And I, I imagine this can be the same when you're dealing with um, people potentially with a disability or have got a need that you don't recognize or something that you're not familiar with, right? You come across it and you think, I'm, I don't know what to do here. I'm scared. And humans, when we're scared, it kind of, it, we're actually, it makes it much, much harder to be empathetic because we're not operating from that, um, from our limbic system. We're operating from our fight and flight. Um, and so I, I think there's a huge part in that, that, and I talked to the customer service director about this a lot. I said, you've got to find space to help these people feel safe in their working environment. Because if they don't feel safe, they can't sit, truly listen and empathize with, with your customers or each other. So, yeah, it was a big learning for me, that experience, even though I kind of work in and around culture and learning a lot. I kind of just see it from that other side of things. It's bringing the human first again, isn't it? Deal with the human, then you can deal with the paperwork later. Make sure that person is safe. Make sure they feel comfortable in your space. And like you said, listening is the most important thing at that point, to just give that person the space to talk about what's happened, to acknowledge their feelings and, you know, name and identify those feelings. That's something we talk about quite a bit in coaching of really just name it to tame it, you know, and then you can start to process what's gone on and just really kind of, like you say, it's just connecting with the person first. Let's put them before a process. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And I just, I wonder how much permission we give people at all levels in organisations to connect with the person first. Yeah. It's tough. When you ask to speak to learners, when you ask for permission to reach out to learners before you start building something, it really, um, I've been very lucky, especially lately, to work in places where I get that permission or I can just do it um, because I know them well enough. But I've, I've got a lot of no's in that. And then you really do have to be creative. And I was working on a project once where we couldn't, it was for nurses. We couldn't talk to the nurses because this was a vendor and it didn't make sense. So we went on Reddit and we just went on like nurse Reddit and looked up training to see how they feel about training. Largely not good. Um, largely <laughs> it's a huge, you know, they feel like it's a distraction from their work. And that really did help us guide our principles going into this project. We needed to make things short. We needed to make things really relevant to the day to day. Um, and so finding those ways is important, but it's also, like you said, very tough. You need space and you need time to do this. You need to be able to step away from your, I need to get this done right now, um, yeah. and really focus. Yeah, I worked briefly in content design, actually for HMRC, for the export service, but I did really love that their whole process, because it's all based on UX principles, is you have to test with the users and you have to speak to them before you can even start to think about what you're doing. I do th think that is a process that is often missing with the learning, that we go straight in either making assumptions because we think, oh, well, you know, we know that this learning is aimed at middle management and it's da-da-da, but we do make assumptions and that's where the empathy then is lacking again, isn't it? Because you don't, you haven't spoke to those people about what the challenges are right now. And I, I would imagine, you know, given world events in the last three years, nurses are even less kind of 
um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, like actually wanting to do learning than they were before because they're even more stressed than they were three years ago. And you've got to kind of acknowledge that kind of life situation that people are in and, you know, trying to get people to do it now when they're home working will be very different to when they were in an office. You know, if they've got kids roaming around because they're off with COVID or with bugs or whatever. <laughs> it's It's connecting those dots of like, Things have changed, and not doing it the same way and presuming that is fine for the for everybody again. I think there's an expectation from people that um, that that is the case as well. Mm. Talking to um, a client yesterday about how much things have changed in terms of expectations, that psychological contract has shifted. So you know, um, and I think I mean you just look at you know nurses striking for the first first time um, in this country. Um, that you know that psychological contract has shifted. I think you you know you no longer have a. I used to work in um, uh, as a head of change and a transformation, and I used to have to kind of say to people quite a lot. You know, this we're, we're sort of looking at this through the wrong end of the telescope. It doesn't really matter what you want them to do. What, where are they? We need to meet them where they are. Yeah. That became a bit of a mantra, meet them where they are. And um, so often we don't. We meet them from our perspective. What do we want to tell them? What is it we want them to do? And a really small example, yesterday I was on a call with a, a client going through a transformation. They got some sur- employee survey feedback back. And one of the loud and clear pieces of the employee survey was that the printers didn't work. And it was really, <laughs> really ticking people off. And the person in charge of the printers at kind of a high up level, kind of had IT under their responsibility, was clearly very frustrated by this. It was like the printers do work, it's the users who don't work. And there's a couple of things <laughs> there for me. So when we start calling people users, we've kind of dehumanized them already and we do it all the time. Yes, good point. Yeah. Funnily enough, we had that conversation this morning with a client, <laughs> printers. But you're right, though, those little things that tick away at someone's you know, well-being in the workplace and just the little things that can really add up and build that frustration, they need to be dealt with. People might think, oh, it's just a printer. It's just, you know, it's only 10 minutes out of the day. But, you know, a conversation we had this morning was that a 10-minute job was taking someone two hours. Yeah. And that's a, that's a massive drain on them. And, you know, yeah. show, show people that you preactively want to fix. More repetitive things, right? That's why, to, you know, like Chinese water torture and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. yes. Because it's those small, niggly, repetitive things that tip you over the edge. I call them micro-stressors. Um, and we sort of kind of forget that those basics, those hygiene factors, you know, um, are so necessary. How does that relate to learning design, Kristen, for you? So when you said that, I was thinking of it's almost a... Um you know, a meme in physical training, when you get your smile sheet, when you get your reaction survey, someone always mentions the coffee. They didn't like the coffee or there wasn't (laughs) enough coffee or there there wasn't the right kind of coffee. But that matters because I think about my experience, you go to a conference, um, you try to get coffee on the way in, but the line is too long. And then you go into the first session. And then by the time you get out of that, the coffee that the conference provides is gone. And now you're looking at your conference, your list of things you want to go to, and you're thinking, well, I haven't had coffee. And it (laughs) matters. That really impacts your day. But then as the conference organizer reading it, you're expecting feedback on content and you're expecting feedback on what I learned. And what you see is I like the coffee and it can really make you feel defensive or frustrated that they aren't caring about the thing that matters 
but they're not caring about the thing that matters to you as the designer or the organizer, that mattered to them. And it can be tough to put your own ego aside to really hear that feedback. And you hear, you see that in user testing, you see that in reaction surveys, even tests can be like, well, you should know this. You should have gotten this question right because we told you, but you didn't tell them the right way. Mm, that's really interesting, actually, because I, I recently went to um, an associate's day for a client I work for, as a, obviously as a freelancer, and um, they were talking about why they'd done what they did that day, and they got us to the National Arboretum in Staffordshire, a beautiful place with an educational centre with floor-to-ceiling windows. They put on the healthiest but really tasty buffet. They gave us really nutritious food, and they said, why on earth would we get you here to learn and not feed your brain? and f- Just feed your mind, feed you physically, make you feel great inside and out, and put you in this beautiful surrounding. And it was a real eye-opener of... That is so true. We are throwing this learning at people. And like I said, they're trying to do it in the home, in a busy workplace, a busy office. And actually going to that place, all that stuff they told me that day has actually lodged in my mind, despite it being very overwhelming brain right now. And that whole thing they cultivated there made you feel like they cared. Yes. And that's what we need more of. Nancy Klein says that place, um, in terms of a thinking environment, place, a place that says you matter is, um, is critical, one of the 10 critical components of creating a thinking environment, or to translate this, a learning environment. So that just makes a whole bunch of sense. I'm designing a, um, an executive communications training program at the moment, and we've just got to the point where we're sourcing venues and um, talking to the venues about catering. And it's almost blowing their minds that I'm saying to them, I don't just want caffeine and sugar for them in the morning. Can we have some things that aren't just... Some people might want caffeine and sugar, so coffee and pastries is fine, but can we have some other options, please, so that we, you know, we can help people feel that they matter and exactly right. We are fueling their brain. We are whole. So back to the human first paperwork later thing that you said earlier on, Helen. We're humans first, right? We're biological mammals. So are we well rested? Are we well fueled? Have we got the right blend of neurochemicals flowing through us to be in the absolutely the right state to to absorb this learning well? Or have we inadvertently, Kristen, to your point, you know, ticked us off by making us queue for hours? not met our basic needs of caffeine and, you know, potentially fresh air in a conference, and then expected us to be receptive. So interesting. And then in the learning design itself, um, all of these little decisions, like when you put people into randomized breakout rooms to talk about something where you might hope that they're being vulnerable, is there a direct manager in the room? Is there skip level in the room? Who are you putting in, putting them in with? And I think as we move virtually, we can, lose sight of those kinds of power dynamics. So it becomes even more important to talk to people to think about what your experience might be like, understanding that your experience is gonna be very different from anyone else's experience because you're you and they're them. Your goals are different, your reality is different, how you feel about work is different. So all of those tiny decisions that you need to make, um, always true back to check your gut with someone who is actually going to be in the room or run it by someone else so you're not designing it from your own perspective rather than a diverse diverse set of views go aside isn't it that you were talking about a minute ago helen has that kind of 
something that you've got personal experience where someone's maybe their ego or their kind of their, their goal for what they're trying to do is but you said you've got personal experience of this lack of empathy in the workplace do you think that's come to play ego and invulnerability maybe i think there's there's probably bits of um ego definitely involved in it but i also think it was just total ignorance of, of an invisible illness because it's not like i've come in with a cast on my leg or you know because i do have a degenerative disc disease as well in five discs of my spine so even just sitting for half an hour in an office chair can get me you know paralyzed in pain and you know then the cycle of that pain with the ms and they all counteracted then like i said my mental health took a decline because i was in pain because i had to sit at this desk and all that kind of stuff just adds up. And when you're saying like, I can't do this and it's, but then, you know, health and safety procedures are thrown at you and you've got to apply for this to get a standing desk or you've got to, anything like that that is thrown at someone mm-hmm. just then exacerbates the pain, the frustration, the all that stuff until I was having panic attacks. And then that was something they could kind of see because I was hyperventilating. But um, yeah, I think it's just very difficult when you've got people with conditions that are hidden. Like my first symptom is that I go blind in one eye and I'm that's how I am at the moment, actually. Um, and people don't understand how that affects you, sitting at a computer all day and the headaches and the tiredness and the even just commuting to work was tiring. You've got no balance. You've got to really think about it, you know. <laughs> spatial perception is not a friend of mine at the moment so it's it's all those little things that I think you've got to actually talk to people and when it goes back to the listening when someone is saying I'm struggling with this listen don't just say well what do you want listen to what they're saying because also when someone's in that state they don't necessarily know the answer and I think that was a big thing for me of being asked well what do you want what what do you expect what what do you want and, and even if you said it, it maybe didn't come out the right way and things like that and it's it again comes down to that individuality that Kristen was just mentioned because like even you know recently I was in a, a breakout room funnily enough and someone had said if I'd known breakout rooms were going to be in this call I wouldn't have come because their neurodiversity just meant that they were terrified so, you know, even things like letting people know up front, this is going to happen in this meeting or or at this training day or, or whatever it might be so that someone can be prepared and say, I can't do that, mm-hmm. you know, and let the alternative happen and not make them feel bad about it. That's the big thing. <laughs> yeah. And, and what would you say, both of you, I suppose, to someone who's sitting there and they're thinking, OK, I'm designing learning, for example, or I'm, I'm working with individuals and I'm overwhelmed by all of this, all these things I've got to think of now. I don't even know where to start. I might step on a mine, you know, I'm, I'm scared. And we could go back to that fear thing. So what would you say to, to people who are working in that space that just feel a little bit kind of overwhelmed and awed by, by this? I'd say definitely speak to people. Ask people what what they need, and 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 there's still that fear that you can try and counter for everyone, and you still will be missing certain elements and things. But just make it clear that you're open to people coming back and saying, actually, I needed this this way, or this didn't work for me because, and take it on board because I think there's a real thing with learning that you can get feedback in from learners, but then it's sometimes not even actioned. It's kind of filed away. Yeah, that's the feedback, and nothing happens. Um. So I think just really make it clear that you will take feedback on board and you will do something about it because even if you didn't get it right this time, it shows you are willing. And that is a big part of the, the empathy. Yeah, that just that kind of um, willingness to learn and that willingness to be almost to be vulnerable to say, I'm, you know, mm. I might not get it right, help me learn. Yeah. 
that's that's something that I've certainly learned in the in the um, EDNI space. Is and is that? <laughs> and to Helen's point, I think collecting feedback is so important, and we can. When we think about empathy, I think empathy interviews come to mind, really just talking to people individually comes to mind. That's not especially scalable. So it is important to marry that with data, just understanding that when you're pulling quantitative data, when you're getting, when you're surveying a large number of people, you need to apply an empathy lens to that data, exactly like you were saying you did, Lorna, with the printer. Survey feedback came back that people were mad about printers. And your first instinct was, well, yeah, that seems annoying. That does seem frustrating for them. Let's think about this from their perspective. Um, and on the other hand, those empathy conversations, those empathy interviews can be paired with data to make to see how that scales across the organization, knowing things like people don't report disabilities. So when you have data on disabilities in the workplace, that's not really the full story um, and just making sure that you're applying that lens everywhere you can um, and asking when you ask questions on a survey, what am I going to do with this? Am I actually going to be able to fix this for people or am I just gathering data that's going to sit in the drawer forever? Yeah, I mean, that's a really great point. Andrew's got a question in the in the comments, which is women are often expected to be more empathetic. Is this what you've heard and seen? Is it true? You know, I would say no for me. I, it's funny enough, on International Women's Day last year, I wrote a post about how I had totally, in the workplace, lost my trust of women and really struggled to work with them. And it's only since I've gone freelance that I now trust women again because I've got the most incredible network of women around me who have picked up my work when I lost my dad and my grandma a few weeks later who helped me when I'm ill, who just check in with me and say, you've been quiet a few days, are you okay, are you alive? I've had a message this morning just saying, you were stressed yesterday, are you okay? And I've now seen that total other side, but that's in the self-employed world. In employment, I really struggled with getting empathy from the women and seemed to get more from the men, which I thought was really an interesting wow. perspective to what's usually considered, really. Yeah. What about you, Kristen? That's interesting. It's been, um, well, I can say from my perspective, um, I think empathy comes naturally for me most of the time, not all the time. And then there are also always other factors at play. Like, are you feeling pressure because you are one of few women in the workplace and you're not seeing a lot of women in leadership and you feel like you, if you want that space, there might be some competition. You might have to put that empathy aside and focus on your own goals. Um, and I think that happens. So I think as we see workplaces becoming more equal, opportunities being given to everyone. Hopefully that can shift that a little bit and people mm. can feel less like I'm in competition with the women around me because we're all going for that one spot that's kind of like the one that women get in the org. Um, mm. And we feel like we're just on equal footing with everyone else. But it can be hard to get out of that habit that people are in. I mean, I, I wonder if this... Um for me so i think women generally are expected to be more empathetic in in society there's and um, there's been research done that demonstrates that we judge women more on their empathy or lack of and because our expectation is is higher for them to be empathetic and for, for women and i think conversely um 
our role, mental role model for um, leaders and high performers in organisations is typically masculine and empathy is not therefore viewed as a typically masculine quality. So there is, I think, historically in lots of organisations, I think are waking up to this not being valuable. But there's a historically a mental model of patriarchal leadership that says that empathy is a feminine quote and trait, therefore it's not, so it's a weakness. So I think what you have seen is lots of women who have overcompensated for that and almost yeah. bring that to work is a sign of weakness. And it, it doesn't, to both of your points, it holds them, potentially could hold them back in their career, be seen as being, you know, too emotional. Yeah. Um, and that's what I was told, that I was too emotional. And ha and to actually, when I was a lecturer, I was told that I cared too much. And that fascinated me, that you could care too much about your students. And I was told, you know, it's not like I was getting over-involved, but, you know, I had kids with... They were 16, 18. I had teenage pregnancies. I had kids with, you know, abuse going on in the home, all sorts of stuff. And they would come to me to talk, but I got told I was... I had too much empathy. And it just... it I just couldn't get my head around that that you should push them away and say no and, you know, go and deal with it elsewhere or something. If they bring that into your classroom and they feel safe, then I saw that as a strength. And, it, yeah, that I think that was a side that I just couldn't... I couldn't go down that route and push them away. It's crackers, isn't it? Too much empathy. You've got to... You care too much. You put too yeah. much empathy. I've heard that before from different work environments. Mm. You look pensive. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's interesting. And it reminds me, there is kind of a, a trap we can fall in when we think about empathy for learners, because as learning professionals, we have, I think, two places where we really need to flex that empathy. And it's learners, and it's also the, our stakeholders with their business need. So when we look at that survey and people are struggling with printers, we have empathy for, we have to triangulate the need for people to be able to use printers to do their job and the people who were in charge of the printer budget, who just got their printer budget slashed and they can't fix the printers mm -hmm. and they can't do what they need to do. And we're often sitting as learning professionals in the middle of that conversation to problem solve and to say, how can we meet your needs while also meeting your needs? And I think it's like a superpower of us to <laughs> be able to hold all of these truths at once, but it does need to, um, we can't have empathy without also being able to find solutions and make things that do support who are trying to support you know i was, I was at um at the better business summit a couple of weeks ago and and coming back to that point of like the printers and stuff when when you said lana about how people get started a woman on a panel said um you know how i got started with environmental action dog muck Dog muck and parking. Find the thing that frustrates everybody as a community. Use that first to show that you're going to do something about it. Then you introduce the other topics. Then you talk to them about other things and other issues. Deal with the niggle that they're all going to moan about. And she was like, dog muck and parking, that's your way in. And it was just brilliant advice that stuck in all our head because it was like, that is so true that if that printer or that coffee that's not there or something like that is, is a little niggle, just connect that way and then start the conversation about what else do you need yeah what else can i give you it just it, like you're so right that's so and dogma and parking i think is just gonna be <laughs> me, helen dogma and parking and i mean she swore in it but you know, <laughs> I'll not do that. you know but I've, yeah 
and dogma can unpack. But I think it kind of it it really it really translates. I did a piece of work a few years ago with an organisation, it was a shared service centre, and they were really underperforming. And I went in, and um, they, the work environment. First of all, half of the people in the in the office couldn't park near near the work environment. It was dark at night. It was mainly a female environment, and because there were more important men who worked in the building, who'd reserved all the director's spaces around the outside, they got the parking spaces, and the women who you know had to walk in the dark across two other dark car parks to park somewhere else, even if they were injured, which some of them had got you know niggles. Um, it was dirty. The cleaning wasn't done properly. There was like balls of hair under some of the desks, and the toilet was full of, the, full of these passive-aggressive laminated signs. <laughs> and the first thing that I did is I, I ripped down the passive-aggressive laminated signs, and I went to have a word with the person who, who you know, was hogging the parking. And I got the cleaners in because that stuff matters. And they're not ever going to start improving their call response rates or their resolution issues with the service centre if they're sitting there thinking, you don't care about me. Yeah, I don't want to come into this environment. Yeah, and that's true of online learning and everything, isn't it? Your tone of voice. Yeah, I mean, and I think to that, you know, the point you made about the person who's neurodiverse and if I'd known there were breakout rooms, I wouldn't have come. This is really impacting me. Um, and the fact that you haven't asked me says that you don't care in, mm. you know, in so many words. It's um, But yeah. the great thing about that was the person running it apologised, said, right, I want to talk to you. Everyone else is going in the breakout rooms. I want to talk to you about this. And in the next session, from the, for the next one, she started sending out an email saying, there will be breakout rooms. This is the topic we're going to discuss and all that. And she reacted and she has made that person now comfortable to come in. And that is the empathy, isn't it? That is that I want to do something about this. And I mean, she is an incredible woman anyway that runs that. But that is the reaction that we need, for sure. Yeah, that that learning, kind of learning from it. So first of all, being not expecting to get it right for everybody. You can't design perfectly for everybody. But having been open and receptive enough to listen that when feedback comes in, you take it seriously, you respond to it, and you adjust without the ego that we've talked about earlier on. You know, somebody who was a little bit more kind of single-minded or a little bit more, you know, um, fragile in kind of taking that feedback might not have responded in that way. And that's all people are really asking for, isn't it? Yeah. She listened. She asked the questions. She's done something. She's responded. Those. That's the lovely triangle, isn't it, of just... And it took her, what, 10 minutes to have that conversation? That's all it is, 10 minutes out of your day. I think you got it perfectly when you said you take it seriously. You go into conversations, you really, the advice I always give people when I talk about doing empathy interviews is you believe that what they're saying is true, even if you know that it's not. Even if you know that's not how I did it, that's not how this course was set up, that's, I did tell you this and you're telling me I didn't. Even if you know that everything they're saying is wrong, that's their perception. And you need to go into it believing that what they're saying is true because what they're saying is true to them. And your job when you're empathizing with someone is to understand what is true to that person. Yeah, because there are multiple truths in that scenario. There is, you know, me, me as a, a learning designer and what I show, what I'm trying to achieve here and how I've done this and my experience of that. And there's the other person and their experience of that. And both of those realities are true, which sounds a little bit matrix, I appreciate, but it is actually the case. 
No, it's true. I mean, I, I was talking, well, listening to a conversation about grief the other day on a podcast, and there was, and someone said, "What's the worst kind of grief?" And they said, "Whoever ex- is experiencing it, that is the worst kind of grief." Yeah. Everyone's different perspective. For them, it is horrendous. Whether it's a parent, a child, or whatever, you cannot compare things like that. So, and it's the same with these experiences. You know, these people are in their world, in whatever circumstances they're taking this learning, or being in the workplace. And we should just listen and not discount that because you know, for some people, it might be easy to you know, sitting in an open plan office. I realise now was massive for me, that it was really difficult. And I, I think I'm on the neurodiversity scale and, you know, extra noises around me and things like that really contributed to my stress and frustration. So just, you know, thinking how you can help people in these environments and that actually if someone's saying, this is really difficult for me, that it is. It might not be difficult for you, mm. but for them, if they're speaking up, it really is. Yeah, and I think that, um, you know, be- believe people, it's that uh, assume best intent. You know, mm. I think you can kind of bookmark that, bookmark that with just be curious about what somebody else's experience is like and don't assume that your lens is the only lens that might be on this. Um, yes. And it's okay to get it wrong. It's how you respond to it that um, that, that matters, that makes the difference, right? Um, and I think the only thing is, is that there's, have a little empathy for yourself as well. You're not going to get it right every time. And that's okay. And if you can feel safe with knowing that you might not get it right every time, but you know how you're going to handle it, that almost gives you permission to learn and to do the things that you've just said matter so much. Mm, definitely. Perfectly put. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else you would add or want to kind of make sure we close, close down with, ladies? I think we're almost at our time. We are. No, I mean, that's been great. It's been lovely to connect with you both about this topic and... Yeah, it's it's a real eye-opener, actually, to get other people's perspectives on it now as well, <laughs> ironically. Yes, yes. Yeah. I'm so glad to have had this conversation with you all. It's morning here, so this morning. This is how I'm starting my day, and I think it is a perfect foundation. So, Lorna, Helen, thank you so much. Oh, it's been wonderful. Thank you, ladies. Um, really great to meet you and Kristen. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Yes. Lovely you week. too. Thank you. go forth with empathy (laughs) I loved listening back to this episode it was recorded some time ago in early February of 2023 and I'd forgotten just how full and useful the conversation had been massive thanks to Kristen, Lorna and Helen for their time in recording this episode it was fabulous you'll find all their contact details in the show notes with more episodes coming up and there were more to look forward to please make sure to like and subscribe and please do tell your friends about the podcast. It really does make a difference. We're back in a couple of weeks, so please do take care. And as always, thanks for listening and we'll see you again soon.